Hi everyone, this is the outlaw John Roca again with another preview for you this week for the cinephiles. Well, we're doing part two of Silverado, that rip-roaring western from 1985, directed by Lawrence Kasdan, written by Mark Kasdan and Lawrence Kasdan as well. And as I told you last week on the preview, starring a bevy of uh, wonderful 1980s actors, some who st- are still doing their thing nowadays, but others who kind of went by the wayside for a little bit. But uh, this was so much fun to revisit uh, as a film, and so much uh, it was so much fun to get the reaction from all of you last week who really uh, enjoyed the movie and enjoyed our breakdown in part one. Uh, so we're back to finish it out in part two here on uh, this episode of The Cinephiles. Of course, we're going to get into the tail end of the movie and the symbolism there and what's going on on between Peyton and Linda Hunt's character, what's going on with uh, Cobb, with the late great Brian Dennehy, what what he's trying to do, Jeff Goldblum's uh, kind of uh, switcheroo that happens as well. And of course, we're going to discuss how Emmett essentially becomes a superhero uh, at some point in the movie, and we'll touch on that uh, uh, in part two. That's a little preview there for you for some of the stuff uh, we're going to be talking about. Of course, we're going to talk about so much more stuff than that. And look, if you're a patron... You'll also be listening, you also can listen to our new short, which is, it's about artists in this current coronavirus environment, in this COVID environment, and the stuff all of us are doing to be creative. Me and Steve, Karen, uh, is our guest for that short as well, and also all the stuff we've been seeing from like John Krasinski and these uh, all these actors coming together for charity, all, all these people doing this incredible work on the side to stay creative. We're going to get into all of that on the short, so if you're a patron, you can get involved in that as well and i think we might be opening this one up this particular short up for everybody to get a taste of what the patron shorts are all about so if you've been considering becoming a patron here's a nice taste for you of what we do all right enough of my banter uh this is the preview for part two of silverado uh coming out this friday steve morris john roca from the cinephiles what is it you want from me nothing do nothing don't get between us I'm a great believer in doing nothing. We understand each other. Don't worry about me. If you're taking on Emmett, the last place I want to be is between you. Hello and welcome back to The Cinephiles, where we continue our exploration of Lawrence Kasdan's Silverado. My name is Steve Morris. I'm a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hello, everyone. This is John Roca again. I'm a writer, producer, and host uh, here in Los Angeles, California, CEO of the Outlaw Nation. Uh, and speaking of uh, as an outlaw, I'm excited to go jump back into another Western, at least get, part two of this Western. This is going to be fun. Get your hat on, get your spurs, <laughs> strap on your Colt. <laughs> But would you wear the outlaw's mask? That's really my question. I, I think in this movie, no. I think immediately people would be suspicious of you. You, know, you, could, you could argue that Jeff Goldblum is essentially wearing the outlaw mask with that face of his. So I wouldn't uh, trust anybody else to wear a mask like that in the I, Old West. I think that sounds perfectly fair. <laughs> um, well, uh, I think we're just going to get right back into it. Where we left off... Hayden had just confronted Tyree, and when Tyree said he should have killed him a long time ago, Peyton had the guts to just hand him his gun and yeah. manage to survive it. But I think what we're seeing is that 
the tension between all these groups is just starting to build. Yeah, more and more as, you know, Peyton and Peyton is really the linchpin of this whole thing because Peyton swings uh, whichever side he's on. Uh, that's the side that's going to win because he's a gunslinger, because he is so calm and cool and collected. That's the side that you want to be on. And so he's starting to take more of an interest in what's happening. And it's the next day, and we see four riders coming into town, and we see Emmett's little nephew. Uh, he's practicing on this uh, Pinto, um, and as he's <laughs> practicing on the horse, he runs right into our four bad guys. Yeah. And they recognize the horse. Where'd you get this horse, kid? This is my uncle's horse. Like hell it is. And just as they're saying that, who comes up but Emmett? <laughs> and, and, of course, his first concern is, you know, what are you doing with my nephew? Like, what's going on here? Right. And this is also the first time that he sees McKendrick, which we now realize this is the son of the guy yeah. he killed, the guy him got him sent up to Leavenworth. I didn't know you were out. Seems short to you? Yeah, right. A little shot, a little, uh, little passive-aggressive shade there. <laughs> That's all over with as far as I'm concerned, Emmett. I'm satisfied. And I think we've resolved this. I don't think we have to worry about... Totally. Except there's something about the horse. Don't you recognize this pinto? What? What's well, Lee's horse? And now Emmett looks at them, and he looks at the brand on the pinto, which we noticed yeah. in the very first scene after the guys ambushed him. Yeah. And he looks over at one of the or other horses, and that's when he realizes. Yeah. And the thing is, like they tried to shut the guy up from for saying too much, and then he revealed it, and that's what kind of clued Emmett into what might be happening here. But you know, at this point, you wonder to yourself, you're like, well, look, they have all the power. Why can't they just kill Emmett right now as soon as he figures it out? But you know, that's not in the script, so you don't. But uh, in that moment, I mean, if he's so much power in that town, owning the sheriff and everything like that, you think that's the moment. But maybe you don't want to lose your guys. Well, and I also think there's there's they want to maintain the veneer of civilization. Right, right. You know what I mean? Like they want they want to because there is a whole town here. And if they yeah. just started just assassinating people in the street, then I mean it, it, it's one of and, and I think you're right too. This is what the movie is. This is what's in the <laughs> script because right. they certainly establish them as really powerful, but you know, they don't want the rest of the townspeople to see them just killing people willy-nilly, you know. True. But the moment, but what's so great about this is that we set up this thing at the beginning, and I think you've almost forgotten about it. Yeah. You know, like these guys ambushed Emmett. He walks out. He doesn't know who they are. He doesn't know where they came from. And he sees yeah. this Pinto with this brand on it. And now all of a sudden it clicks through like, oh, this is all part of one big plot. Yeah. So when McKendrick just said, oh, he's past it, he's not really past it. And I like Emmett's move here, too, which is that he could, he could have said, well, I'm keeping this horse. Yeah. But instead he goes, oh, you know, I'm sorry. Here, take the horse. Yeah. Because yeah. he, he knows. We're in the sheriff's office. He must be pretty good. He's good, all right. Too good for my man. That's why you got to take care of it. Cobb, looks like you're finally going to earn your money. He doesn't look too happy about it, Cobb does. You know, it's just, this is when we start to see a little bit of the cracks in Cobb um, start to appear. And this is certainly one of those moments. It's easy to be easygoing and smiley and all that when you're really in control of a situation. But the second an X Factor, like Emmett comes into this situation and Malachi and possibly Payton, then all of a sudden that little veneer of, of uh, um, I don't know, vulnerab uh, invulnerability you thought you had starts to slowly disappear. Well, and I think Cobb is a realist. Yeah. You know, as much as we've seen him be this sort of smiling 
calm guy. He's he's a very smart guy, smarter yeah. smarter than McKendrick, smarter than any of our other bad guys, and yeah. he's the guy who really sees what a person like Emmett can do, and he also I think knows who's Emmett's Emmett friends with. He's friends right. with Peyton, right? Which of course is where we're going to go next because we end up at the bar and there we see Stella talking to Cobb. What I've seen, Peyton doesn't care about money. <laughs> He says he doesn't care about anything, but he does. There's just no telling what it's going to be. This is a running thing that you don't know what Peyton is ever going to care about. Right. Then he tells the story. We're going to finally hear about the dog. (laughs) Somewhere along the line, we picked up this dog. And they're leaving the town, some town, and a bunch of locals are hot on their tail. And the dog somehow got tangled up in Tyree's horse. Mm. And what did Tyree do? Shot the dog. Shot the dog. Before you know it, Peyton is off his horse. And he's holding this dog. Ain't gone all strange on us. Said we should go on without him. Well, I thought he was kidding at first, but he wasn't. And, and what's interesting about the scene is what's happening as this is going on is way in the background, we see Peyton walking into the bar. Yeah. And he slowly walks up while this story is being tell, told about him. And, and Cobb says, just as Peyton's arriving. Well, we did like he asked, and we left him. And he went to jail for a dog. You want to hear the funny part? Peyton didn't even like that damn dog. (laughs) (laughs) And of course, Peyton comes in with a joke. It evened out in the end. They locked me up. The dog sprung me. (laughs) (laughs) And then Stella asks the question that we've been hearing over and over and over again. She says, where's the dog now? He left me. (laughs) That's perfect. So so we talked about this a little bit in the first part. What do you yeah. think is the truth of this story? Why did Peyton decide at that moment to help the dog? Yeah. What what did happen to the dog? Well, if he shot the dog, I mean, the dog left him because the dog is a survivalist. Uh, in the, I mean, I imagine if you run into a wild dog or a dog that's out there in the West, it's a survivalist. So if uh, you shoot it, it already has a sense of like, oh, this is danger. So it will leave when it's ready to leave, when it uh, sees a better situation come along, you know. And so I think Peyton, I think Peyton, uh, I don't know if he didn't like the damn dog. I think Peyton saw what the dog symbolized, which was all the other people that they were stepping in, stepping on and hurting and shooting. And maybe finally the dog was that line that woke him up, you know, to realize what um, what they were doing. Because he said him, he said business was good, which means Peyton was part of his crew for quite some time. And so when the dog uh, comes into the situation, I think it's Peyton finally like waking up to the fact of what crew he's actually with and what they're actually doing. So it's more symbolic in nature than it is necessarily the actual dog. To me, it's all about Tyree. Right. And what does Tyree say about Cobb? And here's what I mean by that is that Cobb is very charming. Mm -hmm. And I think. Maybe more than anyone else in the movie, except possibly Stella, is that Cobb gets Peyton in a way that Emmett won't. Right. Like, Emmett and Peyton like each other, but but Cobb has that kind of intelligence. He sees through Mm -hmm. things, and he sees through some of the fallacies of the world, which I think Peyton does, too. And I think when they first started riding together, they connected on that. Yeah. And that I think Peyton fooled himself into believing that Cobb was a certain kind of person. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. the fact that Tyree shoots the dog and that Cobb has no problem riding with Tyree. And I think yeah. that Peyton sees who Tyree really is. And in that moment, I think he realizes that Cobb always knew who Tyree was yeah. and that Cobb 
as much as he has a lot in common with Peyton, that they are fundamentally different because mm-hmm. Cobb allows Tyree to be there, and Tyree is a killer. Yeah, you know. Well, Ty- Tyree is the other flip side of the coin of Peyton. Like they're essentially the same yes. person, uh, but two two sides of the same coin, so to speak. I mean, uh, you know, if he could have Tyree with. Uh, Hayden's intelligence, uh, he'd be he'd have his perfect man, his perfect second in command. Yes. And I and I think if Cobb scolded Tyree for killing the dog or tried to keep Tyree in check, mm. maybe Peyton stays around. Yeah. But but when yeah. he sees that he doesn't, he's like, Oh, no, I know yeah. where this is going. You know? Yeah. And then Cobb says, Let me talk to you. And they sit down together. I told you this was a sweet setup. It is now. Maybe you could run it without Stella. This is her life. I'll go before she does. Well, he hits him on three fronts, right? He gives him more money. Then he says, I took out the $13, which is a little kind of subtle yeah. thing that I'm still in control of you, so to speak. Then the idea of running it without Stella as him trying to appeal as someone would appeal to Cobb. And so when you said earlier, like, Peyton, he knows that Peyton, he thinks he knows Peyton. He doesn't know Peyton that this version of Peyton he does not know. That version of Peyton he did. Mm. So this version of Peyton isn't easily swayed by the extra money and when he brings up Stella um, Peyton immediately is like, no, I'm not going to do that. You you know, you kick me out before you kick her out. This is her life, you know. And so in a way, Peyton kind of surrenders a bit of power to Cobb by revealing his uh, affection for uh, uh, Lin, uh, Linda Hunt's character um, uh, Stella in a in a you know in a way I don't know he just reveals his character in that moment and uh, it gives a little bit of an edge to Cobb for later. I think your explanation is the most logical one, <laughs> and I'm going to give a different explanation. <laughs> fair, fair. Which is like it, it could be that to some degree Cobb is playing 3D chess, which is that mm. he what the story we just had is there's yeah. no telling what Peyton's going to care about, and we hear about right. the dog. Right. And now he says, what if you run this place without Stella? I'm going to kick Stella out. And, and Peyton says, as you say, I'll go before she does. What Cobb just found out was the next thing that, St- that Peyton's going to care about. Yeah, that's what I said. It's like that's, he surrendered a bit of advantage to Cobb. So Cobb knows what to use with him next uh, down the you road. You know what? I misunderstood yeah. you. You were saying no, exactly no. what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but, but he could have been using the money as a way to test to see where, where Peyton is uh, about money. So that's a possibility. Well, that's too, what, yeah. yeah. I think this whole thing is a test yeah. to see where Peyton's going to go. Because what we're about to get to is that he says. Well, those fellas you come to town with, they're causing some trouble. It's going to take some straightening out. And he says, and I think Cobb is honest at this moment. I just want you to understand it has nothing to do with us. Because Cobb knows how dangerous Peyton is. What is it you want from me? Nothing. Do nothing. Do nothing. That's a big one. And Peyton's response? I'm a great believer in doing nothing. (laughs) (laughs) Which I think he lies to himself because... Peyton clearly hasn't done nothing. He's been part of this crew for a while. He got into the situation that he got into uh, and ended up in the desert lying on a rock um, and then quickly falls in with this guy and does stuff with this guy, then takes the job at the saloon. Like, So he, I think he's lying to himself that he's a guy who does nothing, but he actively does a lot of things throughout this whole movie. That's 100% I agree. So, because what has he done? He's killed two guys. Two guys, yes. One of them over a hat. Yes. You know, 
He has helped. He's gone and recovered some money from a whole bunch of bad guys. Yeah. Put himself in, you know, right in the middle of stuff. He handed a, a gun to Tyree to have him put it under his chin. Right. Peyton is continually stepping into situations. Agreed. Yeah. And then the last line, a great capper on the scene. Don't worry about me. If you're taking on Emmett, the last place I want to be is between you. Yeah. What I love about that is that it's setting up how what a badass Emmett is. And so then we cut to Emmett shooting the needles off of cactuses or cacti. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. First with the rifle, then he's practicing his quick draw. Um, and I just want to tell you about the guy who trained Scott Glenn and all other okay. cowboy guys. His name is Arvo Ohala. Okay. And Arvo Ohala was one of the big quick draw gun handling trainers of the classic age of the West. Oh, wow. He trained Paul Newman, Clint Walker, James Garner, Henry Fonda. He played James Arness. He's, he worked on Gunsmoke. Like, he was the guy. And apparently, he invented an entire new way of doing a quick draw. Um, <laughs> because what he taught himself how to do was that as he brushed his hand past the gun in the holster, he already was pulling the hammer back as oh. as the gun as the gun is still in the holster and he's starting to pull it out and right. this shaved some you know tenths of seconds off his quick draw they right. clocked his quick draw at one sixth of a second wow and he said his thing was he used to drop a coin with his gun hand right draw and shoot the coin in the center of the coin before it hit the ground <sighs> yeah yeah he was in his mid 60s when he was uh, training these guys in Silverado, and he mm. told Costner, he said, "Listen, because Costner, of course, is you yeah. know full of juice, yeah. as, as uh, Emmett describes so Jake." <laughs> and he says, "I'll tell you what, you go for your gun, and I'll kill you twice before you can shoot me." <laughs> and Costner goes, oh, "Come on!" And not only did he kill him twice before Costner could kill him, he did it over and over again. <laughs> Surely must have pissed off Costner. <laughs> like this guy was fast. Wow. Um, and apparently both Scott Glenn and Danny Glover trained really, really hard. And in fact, he was most impressed with Danny Glover's ability with the rifle. Oh, wow. He said he looked like the real deal with the rifle. Yeah. He looks it in the movie. Yeah. So Emmett puts down his rifle, goes to practice his quick draws. And of course, this is almost exactly what happened to uh, Mal's dad. Yeah. And just after he shoots his six uh, shots out of his revolver, we hear... You're empty, mister. <laughs> There's Tyree and a couple of the deputies, and he runs for his horse. No go. They lasso yeah. him. Another guy lassos him. And their way of beating him up is running into him with the horse's hooves. Yeah. This was the thing that was done, too. It's really? kind of it's, Yeah. Oh, well, yeah. It's kind of insane to think about. This was a, a way to kill people, a way to torture people, uh, to kind of send a message, you know. And the hoofs. I mean, we've seen, you've seen a horse kick. If you've ever seen the videos of a horse kick anything, it's just like scary as hell. So imagine a horse going at a general trot, just the the size and the density of a hoof hitting your head. It really is, you know, kind of, it is a movie miracle, of course, but he should be dead, for God's sakes, because the horse runs over his chest and then runs through his head. Yeah, it's brutal. I mean, in the way they do that, we're in a really, really long lens. Long lenses compress space. So it's not as close to him as it looks, but still pretty damn scary. I love their line, by the way. He's practicing so hard for a fight, he missed the whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> and then just as they're about to kill him, who comes up on the hill behind him but Danny Glover with his Henry rifle? I don't want to kill you and you don't want to be dead. It's a great line. <laughs> it's a 
great, great <laughs> line. Especially the way Danny says, I don't want to kill you and you don't want to be dead. It's a great delivery, man. <laughs> and, and of course, and they're kind of saying, I, you know, come on, he's not that good. <laughs> and right. one guy says, well, let's find out. And he goes for his gun and of course he gets killed. Yeah. Um, and they cut to those those guys walking off. And we're back at Mal's cave, I guess. And Emmett wakes up and he is wounded and hurting. How you feeling? Be a lot worse you hadn't come along. And it ends up that Mal was looking for Emmett because they realized they might be facing the same bad guys. Yeah. And what Mal says is, I want to find out if they had the the, the Henry rifle they had is the same as my dad. And of course it is. And he's holding it yeah. in his lap. And Emmett goes, I got to go warn Jake. And he gets up. You never make it. I got to. And he falls down. <laughs> I'll go. I'll bring Jake out here. You be careful. You're in it now. It's going to get mean. He rides into town. He sees the house that Jake's family and Emmett's family's in. There's some creepy music. There's some guy staking it out. So he realizes he can't go that way. He goes to see Ray because maybe Ray can get a message to Jake. So why come to me? Because you're my sister. There's nobody else. The bad guys are looking around for Jake, too. And where is he? He's in a barn <laughs> with the blonde from the bar. And he's doing, like, acrobatic swings doing, on the rafters. It's so weird. He's doing Olympic stuff. Yeah, it was weird. <laughs> it's so weird. And Ray shows up with Slick. Jeff Goldblum, he's going to yeah. help us. So what we think has happened is that Slick has gone to talk to Jake. He comes back to Mal and says that, oh, he'll meet you by the church. You know, says, be careful. The bad guys are everywhere. And they thank each other. And Slick walks away. And Mal walks up to the church. And we see a figure sitting at the church. Yeah. And it's cop. Don't shoot the sheriff. That's against the law. And then Mal gets beat up. I mean, I don't know why you trust the, the guy who just rode into town. For God's sakes, and a guy who needs a gambling, uh, who needs a game to keep going, but uh, they do for whatever well, reason. And of course, he turns on and the guy that's having sex with his sister, who's a, a prostitute. You know, yeah, right, exactly. Like this yeah. is not a person that you <laughs> feel should feel good about. Exactly. Plus, it's Jeff Goldblum. I mean, he's not a trustworthy guy. <laughs> he really isn't. <laughs> so, so many films, he's not trustworthy in. I mean, please. And we're going to give you a fair trial. <laughs> Followed by a first-class hanging. Or you could ride out of here before dawn. All you gotta do is tell me where I can find your friend, Emma. Pretty crazy, man. Trying to turn everybody against each other, trying to turn everybody on his side and, uh, you know, catching them in certain situations. And, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, uh, it's. I guess when you're in that desperate situation, it's it's tough to know who to trust. And so you kind of take things on the fly, you know, and unfortunately it, it blew up in their face uh, in this moment, at least right now. Well, and what you just said about it's tough to know who to trust plays out so well in the next scene because the next scene we're in the jail yeah. and who wa and, and Mal's there obviously had the crap beat out of him and yeah. who walks in but Peyton. What happened to Emmett? Cobb's men just about killed him. That's what happened. I got there just short of too late. Lucky. Yeah. It's working out real good. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, working out real good. And then Peyton asks, where's Emmett now? Yeah. And I think this is a great moment because we love Peyton. Yeah, yeah. But Mal doesn't know Peyton that well. Right. And so when he says, where's Emmett now? Well, is that Peyton asking or is that right. Cobb asking? Where's Emmett now? You're working for Cobb these days, aren't you? 
And that is a great, great thing to like put this. We have these guys who come together, they just meet and they're just best friends and totally trust each other. And now we drive a wedge into that trust. Yeah. yeah. You waltzed in here pretty easy. You can go out the same way. Damn. Just damn. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, you know, you lie down with dog, you get fleas. Dogs, you get fleas. And so it's that kind of thing. You know, you chose a side. So why should I help you if you chose the wrong side? You know, yep. makes sense. Self-preservation. Well, and this is the thing is that each one of these characters has to make a choice at a certain point. Right. And I think the biggest choice, because I think it's the strongest relationship with the bad guy, is Payton. Yeah. Is that he's got the toughest choice to make. He, he is the person who most wants to not be involved. Right, right. And partially because he has, he has the most choice. Emmett killed McKendrick's dad. Yeah. They've already tried to kill him. Right. Mal's dad was killed by McKendrick's men. They want him dead. Yeah. They don't have choices. Peyton has a job. Job to do. He could do nothing. <laughs> Is he all right? Looks bad, Ray. He's a hard man, and he won't give them what they want. And then we see Jake walking up to his house. Seems yeah. like he might have had a few drinks. <laughs> and he walks in and finds a slice of apple pie and a glass of milk. <laughs> so perfect. It's great. Um, and he grabs a lantern and he walks through the room and he walks into another room and there are a bunch of bad guys with masks who have guns on his family. Yeah. Yeah, man. This is tough. And Amanda Boyce is talking with uh, Ray and she says... Well, Jake's been with me all evening. I just left him. Where's he now? Went home. And it's this moment that Peyton realizes what's going on, and he runs towards the house. Been with you all evening, even after Slick came to get him. Slick didn't come. Back in the house, Jake spits in the bad guy's face, and the bad guy picks up a lantern and throws it at some books, which lights it all on fire. And this is the moment that Dad chooses to attack. Mom starts to fight. Dad kills one guy, and then he gets shot. Yeah. And Jake screams, and Mom gets knocked out. And the bad guy goes to kill the kid. Stop it! Saw us. Bring him with us. Peyton runs up, sees the burning house, and inside the saloon, Ray goes in, and there's Slick at his poker game, and she sits down right next to him. Yeah. She very flirtily puts her hand on her on his thigh and then slides it down and steals that knife out of his boot. Well, also, don't forget that Jake screams when he hears the shots inside the house mm. when he's on the horse. Oh. That's, a, that's an interesting emotion from Jake that we haven't seen the whole movie is true desperation. He's a wild animal to a degree, Jake is. Jake is a very emotional, wild animal. So when he is like handcuffed and sitting on that horse and he hears the shots from inside his family's home, and he can't do anything about it. The scream he yells out is one of desperation, you know, and anger. I think that's a great point you're making, um, because he's also a kid. Yeah, he's a kid. You know? So the emotions are all over the place. Yeah. Well, well, and he really didn't see the consequences of his actions. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Even when he was in jail about yeah. to be hung, he's like, all I did is kiss the girl, and we should get out of here. Right, he's not right. really seeing the fact that, no, dude, you're going to die. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. now I think you're totally right. This moment where essentially his his whole family could be being murdered. Yeah, that's when he I think becomes an adult on some level. Yeah, uh, I think it's a really good point. Uh, Peyton carries mom out of the burning building. I love Stella when she shows up at the yep. fire because she just starts giving orders. Tom, you go help with the buckets too. Nathan, help with that wagon. And the respect they have for her, they they mm -hmm. list their orders. They all go do it. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. I, 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 she, I, she might be my favorite character in the movie, 
in a, in, yeah. in a sense, well, I don't know, favorite, uh, the most unexpected. I'll put it that yeah. way. Sure. Because she's so respected. She's so smart. She's so self-contained. She knows exactly who she is. Yeah. And we start this bucket line and Peyton is up at the head throwing buckets of water into the blazing fire. By the way, when they shot this, it was 20 degrees below zero. Why do you want to put out the fire? I mean, God. Kevin Klein was thrilled to be at the front of the bucket line because it was the only position where you were warm. <laughs> That's great. And then Cobb walks up to Peyton and says, give it up. Because Cobb is a realist. I hate to see this kind of thing in my town when I have to look into this. Well, see, he's paying lip service to it as a politician. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then that, that kind of spurs Peyton to say, yeah, me too. And then we get this moment here between them where he says, I thought we talked about this. And he says, and this is a great comeback, says, we never talked about this. And I love that. That's, I mean, yep. using the same words right back, but putting different meaning on them and, you know, inferring the current situation. I loved it. Well, and again, you know what it is? It goes back to you never know what Payton's going to care about. Yeah. Is that when it's about Emmett, all he says is, man, if, I, if you're going up against Emmett, I don't want to get between you. Right. Because Emmett is uh, a, a tough man yep. with a gun. He can handle himself. He can handle himself. And Payton's not going to get involved. Right. When he talks about taking the bar away from Stella, who's helpless, or the dog, right. or now this family and little kid. Yeah. Well, that's different. That's something you never know what Payton's going to care about. This is what yeah. he's going to care about. It's who he, yeah, he views Stella as help. Even though Stella came down there, was barking orders and people were listening, he does see Stella as someone he wants to protect, for sure. Because what he says is, They took the little boy, Cobb. And he walks away and he straps his gun on. And then there's this shot of <laughs> Brian Dennehy walking away from the fire that's just glorious. I mean, yeah. he looks yeah. so cool and so badass. And he goes up to Peyton and says, You're still worried about the dog, aren't you? <laughs> still smiling, still with that Brian Dennehy mm -hmm. calm. He says, you got to calm down, Peyton. Everything will be put straight in a few days. I saw how you're putting Mal Johnson straight. Never could count on you to be reasonable. Don't force me to make an adjustment around here. <laughs> and Peyton's response is great. Cobb, you got nothing I need. Because in the end, Peyton, he wants the saloon. He likes the money. He likes yeah. the nice clothes, but he doesn't need it. Yeah, He knows he doesn't need it. And then Cobb brings down the hammer. He says, I ain't thinking about your future here. I'm worried about Stella. She got to do with this. Not a thing. She's just a mutual friend. But if you wind up on the wrong side of this, she's going to get hurt. Yeah. And there's the there's the uh, connection to the conversation in the saloon. Yep. He, he knew exactly which button to push on Peyton. Yeah. Yep. And then... When he rides off, the face, the look on Dennehy's face is that is uh, once again that's starting to crumble even more. Uh, you know, so this there's concern now starting to it, it's slightly, which is why Dennehy's such a master actor. He just lets it kind of flitter across his face for just a moment, and if you can if you're watching, you catch it and you realize, okay, this is he's actually starting to worry now. Hundred percent, totally. Cobb's got something on you, and it must be pretty good. Let me see that. If he didn't, you'd never sit still with all this going on. You sure? And here's the thing. Linda Hunt is a great, great actor. Mm -hmm. Watch her performance and watch the moments that she slowly figures out yeah. that what Cobb has on Payton is her. Yeah. Cobb says there's no telling what you're going to care about. 
Is that what he said? Well, he figured it okay this time. Yeah. And then there's that look. And he looks at her, and she thinks, and then she's got it. Yep. Yep. I have a question. Okay. Is their relationship romantic? No. I don't think so at all. I think it's just friends, and it's strong friendship immediately. Just like him and Emmett. You know, why can't he have that with a woman, too? So, to me, I think it's more a matter of they have a... He just feels a connection to her as a friend immediately. I've been thinking about this a lot. Yeah. And I think... I think what you just said is is what the intention of the filmmaker is. Right. But I also think, and I also know that there was this love triangle with Roseanne Arquette, and she was supposed to be the romantic love interest, but that kind of fizzled, and so they cut out a lot of that right. stuff. Right, right, right. But I also think, and I don't know how to put it exactly the right way, mm-hmm. is that Linda Hunt is not the kind of woman physically that you think is going to, in the traditional Hollywood sense, have a romantic relationship in a movie. Sure, sure. And I think that I really wish that they did. Oh, really? Because because I think the connection between those two characters is so strong and so Uh unspoken that they just look at each other and every time they're in the room together, they're happy to be together. You know what I mean? And that I go, man, wouldn't it have been brave? Because, you you know, there are all sorts of movies where a less than attractive guy and even a less than attractive and much older guy has the mm. gorgeous, beautiful woman. That's just completely accepted in film. And, sure. and the reverse, it rarely, rarely happens, you know? Sure. And th- sure. this was an opportunity where there was a relationship here that I think was so strong that it would like it would have been so cool for him to be attracted to Roseanne Arquette and then turn around and go, oh no, this is the person I'm supposed to spend my life with. Yeah, you know, and it's not yeah. in the movie. I don't think. No, I don't think it's in, in the movie at all. Um, I hear your point. I mean, I think uh, you know, I'm sure Linda Hunt would, might have issue with you saying she's not as attractive, but she's got her own point of view, I suppose. And other people, it's all it's all in the eye of the beholder. But I get your overall point. Uh, but I think. I think it would have muddled things to have him have a, a romantic relationship because then what he's doing is out of love as opposed to human goodness. And I think that's where Payton hmm. uh, kind of wins points with us because he's a good human being. He realizes the mistakes he made as a young man trying to figure out who he was. So now he's determined to never be on the wrong side of a situation like this. And so in his mind, I think he is doing what he thinks is correct and protecting Stella um, and be and willing to let other people die, by the way, to protect Stella, um, because you know he has a kinship with her. And like she said at the beginning, when they were having drinks the first time they met, what's wrong with us? So there's an immediate connection between them as friends. Look, Sarah and I walk into a room, everyone thinks that we're together, but we're not. We just have a great relationship, sure. we're just great friends. So there are people you meet in life, regardless of gender, you just fall into an easy friendship with and it's never romantic and and that actually speaks volumes to the fact that it doesn't have to be because that always kind of is the easy cop-out oh they give them a love interest that's it's an easy cop-out she's her own woman she runs her own business she stands on her own she doesn't need him necessarily so i like that she has her own entity and he's his own entity they just have a strong bond together as friends i i think that's all true and i think that's all mm. the intention of the film yeah, it's just, yeah, yeah, and I think partially it's because the Roseanne Arquette relationship fizzled, yeah, yeah, and ended up not really being in the movie. That I went, oh, I feel like there was an opportunity here, right? That I, I kind of wish they had done. But you know, I, I mean, I love the movie. It's not a criticism at all. Yeah, yeah, I get your point. Man. We're, we're in the jail, and Ray shows up. 
to see Mal, and there's a deputy there who's a horrible, horrible person, and basically <laughs> pushes her up against the wall, and I mean, oh, yeah. gonna rape a dude's sister in front of him while he's yeah, in the right. jail. I, this seemed a bit. I remember watching it this time around. I was like, "This is a bit extreme." Like we we get it. they're all bad guys, they're all evil people. We don't need to have him have try to have his way with this woman right in front of the brother, uh, her brother rather, um, not the brother. Sorry, her brother. Uh, uh, but I guess they wanted to uh, to make this more of a tragic situation. So uh, when uh, she pushes him off uh, and uh, he shoots her. It's more. Well, she uh, stabs him first. Well, she stabs him, right? Exactly. Well, she stabs him, and then he shoots her. Um, there's more of a thing here. So, but uh, you had to get him over to Danny's side of things. So that I guess this was how they came up with it to have him end up on Danny's side of things, so he could choke him and get the uh, get the knife and then get the keys. But yeah, it seemed a bit much. But you know, these are evil guys, so why wouldn't they try? And plus, they probably saw you know evil guys back then. Probably well, and maybe even nowadays too. Uh, saw black people as less than them, so they, you know, had no problem doing what they were doing to kind of like, uh, you know, uh, enforce their power. Well, and I think they, um, lo- looking at it from the opposite perspective, they had this thing where they wanted her to steal Slick's knife. Right. And that she needs to do this. She who has rejected her brother now has to rescue her brother. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that you, if she had just stabbed this guy without him being evil... Then yeah. we wouldn't have liked her so much, but her doing it, stabbing him while he's attacking her, is yeah. more reasonable. What, by the way, one other thing: watch Danny Glover's performance in the moment that she stabs the guy, and yeah. he can't do anything. Yeah, and this is a weird like: how do you act? You're watching your sister mm. about to be raped, who then stabs a guy in the back and then gets right. shot herself. And man, Danny Glover, he really does figures out what that performance is. Also, uh, Lynn Whitfield, her reaction to being shot or just about to be shot is one of the most realistic reactions you'll ever see. Because most people are like, uh, and they brace for the shot. Her screaming out of helplessness and then bam. Yeah. Uh, it's just like it adds more power to the moment. Uh, I thought it was brilliant to do it that way. I totally agree. And we're back in the saloon and now uh, Kevin is pretty drunk, Peyton. Yeah. And, and now this is Stella has put it all together. Cobb's using me to stop you. So good people are being hurt because of me. That makes me mad. <laughs> and coming up is my favorite quote of the movie, to be honest. I almost posted on Instagram the other day. Is it, some people think because they're stronger or meaner, they can push you around. Yeah. Some people think because they're stronger or meaner, they can push you around. I've seen a lot of that. But it's only true if you let it be. The world is what you make of it. Right, which is what she said at the beginning when they first met and when someone come to the platform, the world is what you make of it. Yeah, I almost posted with that picture from the Michigan State House with that guy yelling in the policeman's face with such vitriol and anger in his face. I almost posted that uh, under it and just left it as a comment. Um, and I may still do it. Uh, I hated what happened there, so I may still do it because I thought those lines were, they'd struck me this time watching the movie. The, the, there's a quote from Gandhi, which I, I don't have in front of me, but it's something mm. like, in order for someone to ride upon your back, you must first bend over. Yeah, right. Good point. <laughs> That's a great quote. Yeah. What, what Stella chooses to do is says, I will not be the pawn yeah. that allows this to happen. Yep. And so in a weird way, she's the hero 
because she lets Peyton loose. She says, if I get killed, I don't want to live being the cause of other people's deaths. I like your attitude, but it can be risky. I'm ready for that. What about you? And Peyton says, and this is this is where I go, I, I almost feel like they're in love. He says, I don't want you to get hurt. And man, Linda Hunt's performance in this moment. Mm. He can't hurt me if he's dead. Right. Boom. Wow. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. <laughs> and this is when yeah. we find out about Ray, that she's been stabbed. And uh, Stella says she's going to hide uh, Ray, and we're back at the cave. And again, Emmett is struggling. He tr- he draws his gun as Mal enters. He's still squinting. He's still obviously hurt. He asks, yeah. where's Jake? And Mal says, McKendrick's men got him. It's worse than that, Emmett. They took him at your sister's house. Her husband was shot. I don't know if he's going to make it. And then there's a pause, and he says, He took the little boy with him. And all of a sudden, it's like a wrestling situation. It's like Hogan. Hogan used to Hulk up. <laughs> all of a sudden, he's just like, Oh, I'm good now. Rips off the van and walks over, grabs his guns. He's ready. You said the right combination of words that snapped me out. It is a full superhero moment. It really is. The theme hits, and it's just like, because we heard the line before, if you're going, I don't want to get between you if you're going up against Emmett. You know, and then we saw what he could do with the gun, and then he's been hurt, and then in this moment, you're like, oh, Batman is back. You know what I mean? Like, oh my God, what's going to happen? And they both, you know, they strap on their guns, and then I love that Emmett offers, you know, a six-shooter to Danny Glover. One of these. <laughs> Danny Glover with the two Henry rifles says, This all the do. <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. <laughs> it's just and what's so funny, I feel like I don't feel like the movie has dragged in the in the, no. the kind of mid end of the second act, beginning of the third. There's yeah. but but you had to put a lot of pieces in place and arrange a lot of things and get everything kind of set up in the right way. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. now it's time to knock it all down. Well, it was smart to sideline Emmett for a little bit while you built up these other storylines mm-hmm. so that they could come together at the end, you know, because Emmett had already been established so strongly. Taking him out by having him knocked out or, or recovering in the movie for that time, let everyone else kind of develop to the point where they catch up with Emmett. And now everyone is going uh, to this final confrontation at some point. Well, and this is this is classic 80s filmmaking mm. which is like this is the well-constructed plot yeah you know this is like every we put all our pieces in place and now we all know we're heading towards the climax we understand what's needs to happen we understand yeah. the conflicts and like let's go do it we end up at the jail Cobb realizes that mal has broken out and he says let's get these other guys and he's and i love his last line we're running out of deputies <laughs> Peyton is riding along, and he sees Mal and Emmett, and Peyton rides up and joins them. And the last time that Peyton saw Mal, Mal didn't trust him. Yeah. You know, and when they ride together, the three of them cantering along, there's a look, and we go, that's resolved. And the score is awesome. Back 
at the ranch house, the horses are getting spooked. Bad guys are looking around. They can't see what's happening. And then they hear a rumble. And the stampede comes over the hill. <laughs> stampede! Remember I said we have, like, every Western trope in this yeah. film? Totally. <laughs> when you go like, stampede. oh, my God, it's a stampede. <laughs> Apparently, a stampede is very difficult to shoot. I couldn't imagine. <laughs> One of the reasons is, is happy cows don't stampede. Right, right. So if they're content, they don't stampede. Usually the biggest thing that will make them stampede is they're thirsty. Yeah. Um, which happens in the summer. This is the middle of winter. They're not really thirsty. They right. finally get them to stampede, but they couldn't get them to go the right way. And so there's this moment in the film where the stampede takes kind of a turn to the right. Well, that was them turning towards the film crew. <laughs> oh, shit. Yeah. And it was apparently really chaotic. They never got them to do what they wanted to do. And it's just, this was all figured out in post. All of it was created in post. I mean, mean, not not like CG, but just like figuring out how to edit the shots they have into making it look like what they want. Eminent and Payton are riding in the stampede. They're shooting. There are a lot of bad guys and a lot of them getting killed. And what we realize is, oh, Mal's on the roof. He's picking them off with his rifle. And Emmett, I love, gets off his horse, heads towards the house, shoots, shoots, tosses one gun, draws a second, goes inside. (laughs) Inside, there's a a guy, and he has a gun on the kid, and backs into another room, and we're like, how is Emmett going to get to him? Emmett comes crashing through the window and takes that guy out. (laughs) Um, Pulled a Roy Batty. (laughs) Totally a Roy Batty. (laughs) Exactly. And then Emmett, who's finally got Augie, asks, where's Jake? And Augie says he's dead, trying to get away, and he fell off his horse. <laughs> and Emmett just smiles. <laughs> he says, Jake fell off his horse? And again, what's so great about this is that we know. Yeah. It's just that little smirk from Scott Glenn, and we go, <laughs> oh, Jake faked it. Uh, we're in the barn. Payton's in a gunfight. And who comes and rescues him but Jake swinging down on a rope takes out a guy. <laughs> yeah. And his little smile and, like, lifting his hands up is so funny. Uh, Jake kills a guy. Peyton kills a guy. And Peyton asks, where you been? And he says, Clank dead. Do you think that this is a reference to the part that he, his part that got cut out of the Big Chill? Oh, I don't know. Maybe. (laughs) Maybe they put it in there. Because playing dead was all he got to do in that movie. That's true. That's true. And it's the same director. So maybe. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's the line they gave him and they worked out but i mean he was playing like he fell off the horse so it works both ways a guy has made it up on the roof with mal mal doesn't see him payton fires tries to shoot the guy misses yells to mal mal doesn't hear him and then payton shoots and hits the wall right behind mal and i love the moment that mal turns and is about to kill payton in real and payton's like no no over there (laughs) that seems like a dangerous game to play Especially when you just resolved your issues on the ride up. Exactly. <laughs> um, and now all our guys are together and we uh, jump on the horses and we, we ride off, still being fired at, and we make it to town. Yeah. And now we're going to have our final conversations. And what I love is that we have set up our four guys and we've actually set up the four uh, antagonists for each of our guys. Yeah. Yeah. Is that we know that this is between Emmett and McKendrick because he killed his father. Right. We know that it's going to be between Slick and Mal because uh, Slick is the one who betrayed them and Slick is the one who was sleeping with his sister. 
Right. We know that Tyree and Jake have a conflict over the blonde. Yep. And of course we know that it's going to come down to Peyton and Cobb. Yeah. This is great. It's great, great setup. And and this is, again, this is why I said at the very beginning of this podcast that while this isn't a profoundly moving, poetic, deep, you know, kind of movie, this is screenwriting craftsmanship. Yeah. This is how you put it all together. You never should have got this far, Cobb. This is as far as it's going. And he's still smiling. <laughs> I love that Cobb's just always smiling. Well, I'll do my part. But you better watch your ass. These guys will shoot it off. It used to be a peaceful town. <laughs> I, I have such a connection. Uh, I feel like there's a, such a connection between Cobb's, uh, Den- Dennehy's Cobb's, Cobb and uh, Hackman's uh, Little Bill. I think they both are, the reason they stand out as incredible villains in a Western is because they're almost meta-commentating on what's happening, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, they make little jokes or they make little asides throughout the process uh, that uh, makes you, you know, kind of like makes you feel a little bit like you uh, have a little bit of comfort with this character, but also you never lose the menace. You know, this used to be such a peaceful town. That's just that's his way of like, oh, and he says and, and the other one, right? He's I was building a house. You know, these like random things that they say that, you know, kind of, you know, like half of the half of the stuff is like uh, weird stuff they're saying. The other half is like little jokes for the crowd to enjoy as they're watching the movie. So I, I enjoy this. Uh, all around. He calls him the duck of death. You know, these things are just very funny to give to villains that don't seem that menacing uh, in a way to kind of, uh, you know, alleviate a little bit of the stress, but still not not let you lose the feeling that these are evil dudes. I think that's a great comparison because the other thing about these characters is that both Cobb and uh, Little Bill Mm -hmm. are ahead of almost everybody else in the movie. Yes. They are smarter. And because they're smarter, they see through people in a certain way. Yeah. They're acting at a completely different speed. Right. You know what I mean? Right. Um, and it gives them this supreme confidence, mm-hmm. you know, because they're just superior to everyone else. Exactly. That's why it frustrates everyone around them because they're able to be ahead of them the whole time. What's going on, Sheriff? Hide and watch. <laughs> Our guys ride up past Boot Hill and the theme hits and we see the town in the distance and the kid gets off and our guys check their weapons. See you around. That's one of the midnight star buys. <laughs> yeah, because I mean, it's great because it's just who knows who's going to win or lose. Yep. So they're going to have their final moment of conversation. And you, you know, you, these are the great westerns that have those moments. In Ride the High Country and Sam Peckinpah, uh, Randolph Scott, I can't remember the other actor who's in that with him. They have their moment right before they confront the young gunman, and it's great. They have a little, just a little conversation with each other before they fully commit to it because they assume one of them might not make it out. So it's great. They ride into town, and we're back in town. Slick's still looking for Ray, and he sees Stella come out of this door. And he draws his little quick draw Derringer that's in his sleeve. Um, Karen at this moment said that Goldblum belongs with a tiny little shooter like that. Yeah, of <laughs> that course. Was, that was her line. Don't be afraid, babe. I'll stay with you until your little friend comes back. Jake rides into town yelling and screaming. Come on, boys. Jake's in town. Let's start the ball. <laughs> this is great. What a way to come in. Perfect Jake goes into that saloon. Yeah. Does a little spin, kicks the door open, and then we have Tyree and another deputy there coming towards the saloon with a with a rifle. Look around, and they don't see Jake. Nope. 
and they head back out of the saloon, and Jake slides out from under that step. Mm-hmm. Again, he got his boots on. Yeah, everything. Which, by the way, was Costner's idea. Not smart. Yeah, they can't hear you if they they can't see if they can't hear you. And, yeah, and this is plants and payoffs. Yeah. Um, and and again, you know, we said it many times is that the reason this works as a plant and payoff is the moment of Payton seeing that Stella has built a step behind the bar. Is, right. It's just a great moment on its own. So you yeah. you feel it was just cool then. So you yeah. kind of not thinking about it as a plant, but of course it is a plant. Right. Um, and then we go outside, and Jake looks, and the two guys, Tyree and the other deputy, have separated on either side of the saloon. And he does a thing which I think is right out of Magnificent Seven, which is that Robert Vaughn, who's been the guy who's scared through the whole movie and has been scared in the battle at his last moment, puts his gun back in his holster before he goes out to kill the guys. He wants to make it harder on himself. And of course, that's the moment that Robert Vaughn dies. And Jake does the same thing. And he doesn't shoot them in the back. Nope. He says something, and they turn around, and they kill. He kills them both. Hey, yeah, pretty awesome and moral, straight up. Yeah, and and moral, and it's the yeah. ethical. He wouldn't shoot them in the back. Right. He still made it look cool, though. Oh, totally. <laughs> Ray is asleep, and Slick is there, and we see a rifle come around the corner, and there is Mal, and yeah. we're going. No, Slick is a bad guy, Mal. You don't know that this is a bad guy, and Mal puts down his rifle. And Slick watches and steps behind him and draws that Derringer and Mal grabs it. And the power of Danny Glover over <laughs> over him is huge. And the fear, the fear of Goldblum's yeah. face as his imminent death is quickly approaching is fantastic. Well, and he goes for his knife in his boot. Yeah. And Mal says, fair. looking for this and kill him. <gasps> I love oh. Yeah, that's a great Goldblum death. Yeah, so we've had the the we've had Jake kill his guys with two guns. Yep, we've had uh, Mal in hand to hand and kill his guy with his, the the guy who betrayed his, in, him with his own knife. Yeah, and now we have a completely different kind of battle, which is we have a battle on horseback with Emmett and yeah. McKendrick. I, mm-hmm. You know, Scott Glenn, who hadn't ridden a lot of horses before this, he seems to be doing some really good riding. Yeah, and even does the sort of Tom mix. A guy shooting at him, and he jumps off the horse, hanging on the side of the saddle to get cover, kind of move. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and he takes out that guy, and then he gets uh, his gun gets shot out of his hand, and the gun drops on the ground. That gun dropping on the ground, the insert shot, is the only yeah. shot not shot in New Mexico. Oh wow! They realized they needed it. Needed it. They got a tarp. They went to the parking lot on the Paramount lot. They poured some dirt on a tarp and dropped a gun on it. That's where that shot was done. Other than that, everything shot in New Mexico. Um, Movie magic. Yeah. But now he's got no gun, and he rides away. He rides up some ramp, and then he rides out of the barn, jumping the horse and hitting McKendrick in the head with the hoof. Kind of paying him back for what happened to him. Exactly, and it's a completely different final confrontation death from all the other ones. Right. And now we're at the end. Yeah. And Cobb is sitting in a rocking chair on the porch of the sheriff's office. He looks amazing. Yeah. He's polishing his badge. (laughs) Peyton comes around the corner. Cobb puts the badge back on. There's tumbleweeds. Yeah, the great. street is empty. Yeah. The way that 
Brian Dennehy stands up is just cool. Mm-hmm. And we hear like the timpani playing and the build to it. And we know ex- what's so great about this is that we know exactly what this is. Yeah. We've been waiting the whole movie to have the gunfight. And the way the shots are set up is that Cobb's back is to the empty wilderness. Right. And Payton's back is to the town. It's civilization against the wilderness, you know, yeah. in yeah. this moment. And Stella comes out and watches them. The looks between them. I love the way they've dressed Cobb because it emphasizes his size. Yeah. He looks yeah. like a mountain. What a waste. This could have been such a sweet deal for us. Yeah. Bad luck. Not giving him anything. Yeah. Yeah. And Peyton says, Goodbye, Cobb. And Cobb says, Goodbye, Peyton. And we get those, you know, again, it's the classic shots. The shot behind the gun in the holster. Yeah. And they fire, and Cobb goes down. It's quick. Really quick. It's so quick. And here's what I wonder. Did they know, did either of them know which one of them was faster? Um, I suspect Cobb knew that Peyton was faster, but he thought the intimidation factor might work in his favor. But Peyton, and I'm, listen, I know people sometimes think I over uh, look at things, but. Well, they, uh, then they shouldn't listen to the cinephiles. <laughs> <laughs> like, That's all I, we do. I will, I will make a very, very small comparison here and that is when you're dialed into a situation and no one can mess with you and if it's a competition situation that is how you are how Peyton is is how you are you're completely just laser focused and there is no rattling you and you're letting you're only letting a little bit out there have been a couple of matches in the Shmoda where I was like that I was just like nothing's gonna there's no way they're beating me today and I just know and you call he's so calm you know yeah bad luck and he's the one that says, see you around, Cobb. It, it's just that kind of like uh, laser focus. There is no extra stuff. There's no extra conversation. Uh, and so when it happens, it's like so beautiful the way he does it. It's quick. It's to the heart. And it's done. Um, and so like he's so laser focused. And I love that they put the camera on Kevin Klein's face to show that it's as minimal movement from his face as possible because he knows what he has to do. It's great. I love it. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what I think, and and this is just as you say, analyzing a moment to to to, to death to some degree, <laughs> yeah. because of course we don't know. We have no idea well, what's course, in these guys' heads. It's a movie. Yeah. Here's what I think. I think Cobb doesn't know. Oh, I think okay. Cobb. Sus- he's always, maybe, do you think he's always wanted to know? Yes. Yeah, that's great. I, I think, like that. Actually. I think Cobb knows. He knows he's faster than Tyree. Yeah, sure. And he knows that Payton is faster than Tyree. Mm -hmm. But I think the distance between Payton and Cobb is so slim that he's, like, not sure. And what I I like that idea. And what I think about Payton is Payton doesn't care. Right. Great point. Is that Payton, like, we see him in the the long johns with the gun, is that there's a thing that comes over him in these moments of confrontation Mm -hmm. where he becomes cold. Yes. And Zen. And like, you know, we talked about the samurai idea before of like going into battle already knowing that you're dead and then you can yeah. act freely. I think Peyton in these moments is like, I'm going to live or I'm going to die. Right. It doesn't matter. And the distance between I'm not sure which one of us is faster and I don't care is why Peyton is faster in that moment. 
Also, it harkens back real quickly, Steve, to that line he says, you got nothing I want, Cobb. Yeah. So he has nothing to lose. Cobb has the situation, which is what he says. This could have been such a sweet deal. This could have been this or that. Payton doesn't care about any of that. Cobb has more to lose, so there's more nerves here than Payton. Payton has nothing to lose. And if he dies, he dies in a noble in a noble yep. effort. So you know, it gives him even more uh Calmness, so to speak. Zen. Yep. We're pouring short four shots of whiskey. I'm going to assume <laughs> this is the good stuff. <laughs> yeah, I think so. And they toast, and Stella's behind the bar, and they toast to California. Mal gets on the wagon with Ray, and they've obviously resolved their situation. And there's Roseanne Arquette. <laughs> yeah. In a scene that makes really no sense at all, in my opinion. <laughs> I am sure they went, can't we cut her out of the ending? Yeah, you know, because right. there's weird tensions that are left over from this love triangle that never got developed. Payton and Jake shakes hands and Emmett mounts up and they all say so long. And then there's this line where they say you might make a farmer yet because he's standing next to Roseanne Arquette. Again, this is the detritus mm-hmm. from this plot. And Payton says, I got a job. And the camera <laughs> pushes in and he pulls back his lapel to reveal he's the sheriff. new sheriff in town i think that's such a satisfying ending mm-hmm. i mean it's nice that the town figured out that these two guys that th- these four guys that just shot the hell out of the town and killed like 50 people <laughs> really were the good guys <laughs> but right. like, i guess you're gonna be sheriff <laughs> sure you take the job and we have reached the end of silverado yeah um apparently the first cut of this film was two hours and 50 minutes they they cut it down to 212 and a lot of that's Roseanne Arquette right it's also Mark Kasdan who wrote the screenplay with with brother Lawrence he had a part in the movie he got cut out too (laughs) sorry Mark but that's right that to me is a sign of someone who is a who really knows what film is is that in the end yeah you if it doesn't work you take it out it doesn't matter if it's your brother right you take it out very good point. It was released on July 9th, 1985. It grossed $32 million. It was nominated for Best Sound and Best Score. Didn't win either of them. Mm. It's not a huge hit, but it's a movie that, like a lot of others, people watched over and over and over again on TV, on VHS, on DVD, and it's one of those perennial favorites. Yeah, it is. Absolutely. John, do you have final thoughts on Silverado? Yeah, well... You know, as the outlaw, westerns are my specialty, and this is one of this is uh, this is an interesting western to take a look at because, as Steve said, there are a lot of tropes in this western, a lot of cliches that you've seen in other westerns. However, this is also one of the most unusual westerns you'll ever see. It is a rip roaring good time with stakes that also matter, and that's rare to find. In a Western. And also, uh, I think it has one of those scores uh, that is very reminiscent of a Magnificent Seven totally. score, which gives it even more weight and uh, gravitas, for lack of a better term. But I also think the unusual nature of essentially having four protagonists in this movie is also a rarity in uh, in uh, in Westerns. Look, the Wild Bunch was a crew, but you didn't know that much about all the other guys other than Robert Ryan. Uh, you knew Robert, you knew everyone else through Robert Ryan, right? In Magnificent Seven, you get a glimpse into each of these people's lives, but you don't really spend a lot of time 
with them. With this movie, you have so much time to develop Kevin Klein, to develop Peyton, to develop Malachi, to develop uh, uh, Jake, to develop um, Emmett. You have all this time that that uh, to to spend with these characters, and I think that's what makes the West this Western so incredibly unusual, while also being a, a film that covers all the cliches of Westerns. It's an anomaly within itself. And I think that's maybe why it isn't as, you know, revered as the top Westerns ever made, uh, even though I think it should be considered as such, uh, because it is such an unusual type of Western, but yet it totally completely works. And it is a fun, fun time. And the good guy gets the bad guy. And that's what you want to see. So, and it's always, and it still holds up. It's fun to revisit it now. It still totally holds up uh, with great performances from some act from all these actors who we are going to see in multiple projects going forward afterwards. So it's a fantastic time capsule of a Western, but also a Western that should stand on its own two feet and be revered a little bit more uh, by people who talk about the great Westerns ever made. So, I'm, what I'm going to say about this film is that it represents something that maybe I've been trying to say on The Cinephile since the very beginning, mm. which is that what I really care about on, on a fundamental level is craftsmanship. Yeah. You know, it's not that I don't love fine art, but I love the, the craftsmanship necessary to make the fine art. And the way things work mm. in Hollywood frequently is they're, they're following an idea. So there's some someone comes up with some idea for a kind of movie, and then they're yeah. trying to make that idea happen. And sometimes they fire writers and fire writers and new executives mm. trying to make this thing work. And what I love is seeing great craftsmanship. And this yeah. film is about great craftsmanship. Every single performance is great. Yeah. Every actor is a great actor. Every moment has been thought out and relates to something else. Everything is well set up. The characters are well defined. And so the fact that we're not dealing with big themes, that's okay with me. And in fact, because yeah. I, I just, and I think it, you know, one of my great frustrations in my career, which is filled with many frustrations, <laughs> is like, I always expected a thing from Hollywood that doesn't exist, which is like, I would be in a meeting and they'd read a screenplay of mine and they'd go, well, I don't really like this kind of movie. And I'm always going like, that's totally fine. I can write another kind of movie. Because yeah, if you can see, do you like? <laughs> is, is, is if you can see that I understand how to craft a screenplay. That's the yeah. hard part to me. And the reality is, is that most of the people that hire people actually don't understand how the craftsmanship works. Hmm. So they don't know how to hire someone based on craftsmanship. They only know how to hire someone based on idea. So if they look at my screenplay and they go, well, I don't really like that idea, then we're done. We have nothing else to talk about. And to right. me, it's like, I look at someone, like, I know you can play a whole bunch of different kinds of parts. Yeah. Like, I don't go that, oh, John Roca can just do this one thing, because I know you understand the craftsmanship of acting, mm -hmm. you know? And this, the fact that you cast Kevin Klein as a gunslinger shows that you understand something about that guy as an actor and his craftsmanship that most people wouldn't understand. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, the, the ideas of how you put this movie together is all about the, the detailed craftsmanship of making movies piece by piece by piece. It's why The Cinephiles is such a long, slow, sometimes plotting show, is because it's all those little details that get me so excited. And that is why I was so excited to talk about Silverado today. Yeah. So, 
That's what we think about Silverado. Of course, we'd love to hear what you think. Maybe this is your first time exploring this movie. If so, mm. contact us on Cinephiles on Facebook and let us know what you think. Or you can go to Cine underscore Files on Twitter and tell us what you think of Silverado or the Cinephiles podcast on Instagram. Please subscribe to the show on iTunes and leave your reviews there. They make a big difference. You can also subscribe on YouTube or Spotify. You can support the show by going to patreon.com slash the Cinephiles. We're putting a lot of Cinephile shorts out there. And I oh, yeah. think it's, it should be coming right up on when we're redoing all of our tiers. That's on June 1st. I'm not sure when this this episode should come out right before that. So yeah. June 1st, we'll have all new tiers on Cinephiles on Patreon. Mm -hmm. And if you want to buy or stream Silverado along with every other movie we've ever reviewed, you can do it on Cinephiles.net. If you want to reach me on Twitter, it's SR Morris. Instagram, SR Morris 1. John, how about you? You can always reach me at the Roca says on Twitter and on Instagram. And please come on over to the YouTube channel that I have as well. YouTube.com slash John Roca, uh, John Roca says, uh, and go and subscribe to that as well. We're marching towards 14,000 subscribers. We've crossed 13,100. So come aboard, uh, as quickly as you can to enjoy all the content there. I'm also on Twitch. The outlaw nation is on Twitch. There'll be shows there as well. And if you want to donate to my Patreon, you can do so at uh, patreon.com slash John Roca to support the outlaw nation and all I'm doing over over there thank you you need to definitely pay your taxes to the outlaw nation that is a that is a that is a very important government and it needs your support in these hard it times does. and i think uh <laughs> that's it for this week we will see you next time with another great film on the cinephiles